listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning once again. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. So good to be with you this morning. Would you please uh, take your seats? You're already doing that. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. So it's in your Old Testament, 2 Kings. Use your table of contents. No one will notice. Don't be shy. And if you have a Bible app, feel free to turn there. You guys got it easy. Uh, we recommend you use the YouVersion Bible app if you're using an app for the Bible. Uh, it's all the notes that are on the screen and more. A great way for you to interact and go a little bit deeper. Uh, we're currently in a series of messages uh, on the topic of vision. I'm going to get to that in a second, but I just want to take uh, one minute for kind of family business here at Whitefields, and that is that uh, this week... Um, we lost a dear sister, a dear friend, uh, Tracy Cravens. Many of you knew her. She was very involved in the church. I mean, she has, she's been at this church longer than I've been here. And um, our hearts are hurting. Uh, it was completely unexpected. Um, and our hearts are hurting, you know, that she's left a huge gap in our, our lives, in our hearts, in our church. You know, Tracy was involved in so many things, um, not just in our church, but in the community. She's really a pillar of this Longmont community and really exemplified, I have to say, what one of the things that we always talk about here at our church, which is being a missional people, on mission with God, involved in our communities and doing the work of God outside the four walls of this church. You know, Tracy served in our children's ministry for years. She's a greeter with her husband, Chris. And so she's left a huge gap in our hearts and in our church. And I um, just want you guys to be praying for Chris, her husband. Um, you know, he's going through a lot right now. And uh, right now, we, we, they have a community group that they're in, and the community group is providing meals and things like that. So if you would like to get involved and get on that schedule to help provide meals, we want to connect you with their community group so that you can organize that together so we're all working together. So um, to do that, talk to one of the members of our staff after church and we'll get you connected with their community group so that you can do that. Also very importantly, we want you to know uh, Tracy's memorial service, Celebration of Life, is going to be this Thursday at LifeBridge. There are going to be a lot of people there and I expect to see all you guys there, if you can make it. We want to honor Tracy, and we're going to make sure that the, the things that she lived for, the things that she believed, are really brought to the surface so we can celebrate those things. You know, Tracy was a believer, and we know that she is with the Lord, and we take comfort in that. We take comfort in the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel isn't just an ethereal heaven where we float around as disembodied souls. The hope of the gospel is a new heavens, a new earth, new bodies, where we're gonna, we're gonna embrace her, we're gonna touch her, it's going to be good. We're gonna see her again. But we're hurting until that time, right? We're incomplete until that time. And so we wanna come together and we're gonna do it at LifeBridge because they have a big room and there's gonna be a lot of people there. So I wanna see you guys there Thursday, 10 a.m. We're gonna celebrate Tracy's life and we're gonna preach the gospel because that's what Tracy lived for, it's what she believed. So I hope to see you there. So... With that said, please open with me again in your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 6. We have a message which I believe is also relevant to this topic, so we're going to see as we go through this. You know, we're currently in a series of messages just for the month of January called Vision. So usually here at Whitefields, one of the things we like to do is we like to study consecutively, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, um, but Sometimes we take a break from that and we do a topical study where we go in depth on what the Bible has to say about a particular topic. And um, 
in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at vision. And the idea here is that we wanna look at this idea of vision in the Bible in five different categories. So first of all, we looked at vision for your future. We talked last week about vision for your city. Today, we're talking about vision for your situation. And next week, vision for your church. And finally, vision for others. As we're going through a series, really our goal, right, is to seek God so that we can develop his vision for the things, these areas in our lives, uh, both as individuals and as a church. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we'll pray and get into our study. Our text comes from 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots, a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless our study this morning. Lord, we thank you that in every situation in our lives, Lord, we face unique challenges, but we also have unique opportunities. Lord, help us that we would have your vision for the things that we're going through. Lord, that we would act in step with you in the different areas where you've placed us, that we would see your purpose, your presence, and your power in everything that we do. And so, Lord, as we study your word, speak to us, give us ears to hear, and hearts that apply these things to our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is A Vision for Your Situation. And at any given moment in your life, you are facing certain situations, aren't you? It may be a good situation. It may be a bad situation. It may be a difficult situation. It may be a situation that you would have never chosen for yourself. Or it might be a time in your life where everything is falling into place. Everything seems to be firing on all cylinders and you're amazed that everything seems to be going so incredibly well. But in whatever situation you are facing in your life, whatever situation you are in, there are always going to be both challenges and opportunities in that situation. Every situation you face presents you with unique challenges and unique opportunities. So whatever situation you find yourself in today, the question to be asking yourself is this, how do you develop and live out God's vision for your situation? How do you develop and live out God's vision for your situation? What we see in this text that we see here in 2 Kings chapter 6 is, that, um, is this. Developing God's vision for your situation 
and recognizing, it, it comes from recognizing three things. So to develop God's vision for your situation, you have to recognize three things. And those are God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose, but not in that order. It should be presence, purpose, and power, okay? So you're recognizing God's presence in your situation, God's purpose in your situation, and God's power in your situation. Let's begin and walk through each of those things as we walk through this text. First of all, recognizing God's presence in your situation. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6, we read a story about Elisha. Now, Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah, right? This is Elisha with a sha and not Elijah with a ja, right? And so just in case you're confused who those two guys are, just know that Elijah came first. Uh, and Elisha was the student or the apprentice of Elijah. So we're talking about the latter one here, right? Elisha. So here in 2 Kings chapter 6, what's happening is Syria is attacking Israel and trying to conquer them. But what we see in the first few verses of the section we read, verses 8 through 10, is that God would speak to Elisha the prophet and he would tell him what the Syrians were planning to do, kind of what military maneuvers they were planning to make, where they were going to go and where they were going to attack. And then Elisha would pass that information on to the king of Israel. So the king of Israel would send their army to that place. They were always one step ahead. They could defend the attacks and they would, uh, you know, they would prevent a lot of bloodshed and loss of life. And it says in verse 11 of this section we read that the king of Syria was getting really frustrated by this. As you can imagine, the Israelis somehow seem to know what he's going to do every time before he does it. And he's so frustrated, he is convinced that there is a spy in his midst, in his, you know, cabinet. He say, and he asks them, which one of you guys is passing on information to the Israelis about all the stuff that we talk about behind these closed doors? And he says, you know, one of you guys must be a spy. In verse 12, one of his advisors says, no, there's no spies among us. Rather, there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha, and somehow he's able to know everything you say, even what you say to your wife behind closed doors, right? Like pillow talk, right? He's hearing it all. There's no secrets. Elisha is able to know it all. So the king of Syria hears that, and he says, well, then we've got to do something about this guy, Elijah. We, we've got to take care of him because we're never going to be able to conquer Israel as long as this guy Elisha is out there knowing every move that we make. So what he does, he sends an army to go and track down Elisha so that they can seize him and kill him. And so the soldiers, they say, well, we know where Elisha is at. He's staying in a city called Dothan. Now I want you to remember the name of that place because it's important. It's significant. We're going to come back to it in just a second. So, verse 14, the Syrian army sends horses and chariots. By the way, at this time, wheeled chariots pulled by horses. This was the most sophisticated military technology that exists. If you have uh, chariots with horses, you're at a huge advantage compared to people who don't. So this army with these horses and chariots, kind of the sophisticated military weaponry, all this training, this big army comes down to this little city of Dothan where Elisha the prophet is staying and the whole army is there to capture one man, to capture Elisha. And so they surround the city with plans that they're going to take Elisha, they're going to extract him. Verse 15, in the morning, Elisha's servant gets up and he walks outside on the front porch, right? And he looks around there's a Syrian army surrounding the city. And he freaks out, of course, right? There's no way out. They're trapped. They're, this is an impossible situation. So he goes back inside the house and he tells Elisha about what's going on. He says, hey, we're surrounded. There's no way out. They've got us. They're, they're around the whole city. And he asks him in desperation, Elisha, 
what are we going to do? And Elisha tells him, verse 16, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, you can imagine the servant, he hears this, and he must have been thinking, first of all, uh, what do you mean us, right? Like, they're not here for me, right? I could just walk out there right now. I can do whatever I want. They're not here for me. Don't be bringing me into this. Don't be calling us us, right? This is you. You're the one they're after. And secondly, you must be either delusional or really bad at math because there's two of us here. If there isn't us, there's two of us and there's definitely more than two of them out there, right? So there's an army out there and there's two of us in here. So Elisha's servant, right? He's not blind. He can do math. He can see there's nobody with them. There's two of them maybe, right? Like if he decides to stick around. And they're all alone. They're surrounded by an army. But check out what happens in verse 17. Elisha prays and says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the servant's eyes spiritual eyes were open to see the unseen spiritual realm, he got a totally different perspective on the situation than what he had had before. He saw the situation in a whole new way that he hadn't seen it before. He realized that, in fact, they were not alone. They were not alone. There was so much more going on than what he had previously thought because he just hadn't been able to see it. But now that he sees with spiritual eyes, he sees all this activity, all this support. He realizes that God has not abandoned them. God is with them and God is doing so much more than he could see with his physical eyes. Now notice this. Elisha did not pray that God would change the situation. He merely prayed that God would open the eyes of the servant to see what God was already doing in that situation. Elisha's prayer didn't change the situation, but it changed the servant's perspective on the situation. The army of angels was already there, whether the servant could see it or not. The only difference is that the servant was now able to see what he had previously not been able to see, but which had been there all along nevertheless. Guys, faith is not imagining things that don't exist. Faith is not wishful thinking or positivity or optimism. Faith is the ability to perceive and believe real things which cannot be seen with the human eye. See, this story is massively important when it comes for us, when it comes to you and how you think about your situation and the things that are going on in your life. This is a very important story. Here's why. Because it reminds us that just because you can't see what God is doing in your situation doesn't mean that God isn't at work. I'm gonna say that again. Just because you can't see what God is doing in your situation doesn't mean that God isn't at work. That's what this story shows us. And oftentimes, there's a lot more going on. God is doing a lot more than what you can see with your eyes. Now check out what happens next, kind of the end of that section we read in verse 18. The Syrians come rushing, charging at Elisha from all sides. And Elisha prays that God will strike them with blindness. And he does. So in the end, no blood is shed. And it's an interesting juxtaposition. Think about this. The servant's eyes are opened so that he can see what he's previously been blind to. But the Syrian, uh, Syrian's eyes are made blind so that they can no longer see what they previously saw. Do you see that juxtaposition about sight that's going on in this story? This is a story which is all about perception. It's all about perception and how we view our situations. 
This is a story about how oftentimes when we look at our situations, we can't see all that God is doing. But if you could, if you could see your situation the way that God sees it, if you could see just for a moment all that God is doing, it would totally change the way that you think, the way that you feel. It would totally change your entire approach to that situation. And since we oftentimes can't see all that God is doing in any particular situation, what we need is faith. We need faith to believe what he says even when we can't see it with our eyes. See, God gives many promises in his word. You know, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God gives this promise to his people. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love the promise that God gives in Isaiah chapter 41 to his people. Check this out. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, I mentioned that you should take note of that city name, that place where this happened with Elisha and his servant. Do you remember the name of that place? Dothan. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Dothan is important because Dothan is only mentioned two times in the entire Bible. Two times. It's mentioned here in 2 Kings chapter 6 in the story with Elisha. And it's also mentioned in Genesis chapter 37 in the story of Joseph. Two times. Joseph and Elisha. Let's think about Joseph and what happened in Dothan. Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was also called Israel, right? So the 12 sons of Israel became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, Israel's sons. And he, he had all these brothers, right? But his dad kind of had a bad habit that he inherited from his parents. And that was that he played favorites with his kids, right? It's like when you come home and you say, hey, kids, I'm home. We're going out for ice cream with one of you, right? Like, oh, that's not as exciting as the other kids thought, right? And so, of course, what does that breed? It breeds resentment, doesn't it? It breeds resentment towards dad, but also towards the brother who's being favorited. And so Jacob uh, treated his son Joseph with favoritism. He was his favorite son from, uh, you know, they had two moms and he liked that mom better. And so he treated Joseph with favoritism. And essentially, he put Joseph in charge of the family business, even though Joseph was the second youngest of the 12 sons. And you can imagine the older brothers didn't appreciate that. They didn't appreciate, first of all, that their dad showed favoritism to this one brother. They also didn't appreciate being bossed around by their baby brother. And so one day, when they were in a place where it says it was a desolate place, there was no one around to see them, They took the opportunity and they ambushed Joseph and they attacked him. And do you know the name of the place where they attacked him? I know you know it. It's Dothan. That's where it took place. It's the only other time in the Bible that we read this city name. Dothan was the place where Joseph's brothers ambushed him, beat him up, almost killed him. They tore off his special coat. They threw him in a pit, which may be like a a well. And while Joseph was in that pit, there in this city, Dothan, his brothers discussed what they should do with him. Now, most of the brothers said, we'll kill him, and then we'll bring back his coat all torn up and covered in blood, and we'll say, he must have been attacked by an animal, and we found his body, and, uh, you know, oh, it's an accident and a tragedy. But one of the brothers said, no, I have a better idea. Why don't we sell him into slavery? That way we can make some money off of him, and we don't have to live with murder on our consciences. So they all thought that was a good idea. And what, what the question is, though, remember this, Joseph, this whole time, while they're sitting around discussing what they're going to do with him, what's Joseph doing? He's in this pit, isn't he? And what's he doing while he's in the pit? Well, we're actually told what he was doing. In Genesis 42, we're told that when Joseph was in the pit, while his brothers are discussing what to do with him, Joseph was doing what? He was crying out, 
begging for mercy, pleading that someone, even God, would help him and rescue him from that situation. Joseph was praying that God would save him from this pit, not allow him to be sold into slavery. And yet, in spite of Joseph's cries, in spite of Joseph's prayers there in Dothan that God would rescue him and save him from this terrible situation, nothing happened. And in the end, Joseph was sold as a slave. He was taken to Egypt where he worked as a slave. Years later, he ends up spending time in prison for something he didn't do. All of that took place in Dothan, the prayers that went unanswered in Dothan, the same place where Elijah and his servant were surrounded by the Syrians and they prayed and God rescued them. Joseph prayed in Dothan and God didn't rescue him. But with Joseph, right, in the same place, he prays, he asks for a rescue, God doesn't rescue him. Elisha prays, Elisha gets a miracle. Joseph prays, he gets only silence, no miracle. God allowed Elisha to get a vision and his servant to get a vision of the spiritual reality so they could see what God was doing so it would boost their confidence that God was with them, that God had not abandoned them. But Joseph, he got nothing. He got no vision. He got no answer. He got no explanation. He got silence. And it makes you ask the question, where was God when all of those things were happening to Joseph? Where was God when Joseph was in the pit begging to be rescued. Isn't that the question we always ask when something terrible happens? Where was God, right? Where was God when that calamity hit, when that situation hit? Where was God when I prayed for a miracle or a rescue, but none came? What's interesting is that in Joseph's story, we do get the answer to that question. Where was God when that happened? But the answer doesn't come for 20 years. 20 years, he doesn't get the answer until finally it becomes clear after 20 years that God had actually been with Joseph every single step of the way, the entire time. Every single thing that happened to Joseph from slavery, being sold into slavery, to going to prison for false accusations. It was all part of God's plan and God's plan to do what? To save Joseph's life, but not only Joseph's life, to save also the lives of many other people, including his brothers. And ultimately, as, as I'll explain, ultimately to save us. You see, despite all appearances to the contrary, what we realize at the end of Josh, or Joseph's life is that God never abandoned Joseph, not even for a moment. Even in the silence, God was with him. Joseph ends up becoming a prominent official in Egypt. And during his time in office in Egypt, there's a great famine. And, and Joseph is able to use his position in the Egyptian government to save many lives, including the lives of his brothers. And one of Joseph's brothers is a guy named Judah. And it is from Judah and his lineage that later Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will be born. In other words, back in Dothan, this place where Joseph's brothers attacked him and Joseph cried out and prayed and asked for a rescue and none came. If Joseph's prayer had been answered the way that he wanted it to be answered, if God had saved him from that situation, then years later, both Joseph and all of his brothers die in the famine and the Messiah doesn't come into the world and we are lost as well. See, what you realize in the end of Joseph's story is that God was right there the entire time, silently orchestrating every single event, even the slavery, 
even the prison, even the unanswered prayer. That was part of the plan, right? And many others, ultimately, to save us, to save Joseph by bringing Jesus into the world. See, why that's why Joseph says at the end of his life, he says this incredible phrase that at the, the last chapter of the book of Genesis, he says to his brothers in retrospect, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good and for the saving of many lives. Here's what we learn from both of these stories that take place in the city of Dothan, the story of Elisha and the story of Joseph. Here's what we learn. With God, silence is not absence. Do you need to hear that today? With God, silence is not absence. And sometimes when God seems most absent, that's when he's doing his most profound work. See, the eyes of Elisha were open to see what was going on. Joseph's eyes were opened only 20 years later. But in both cases, it was true. And friends, the same is true in your life as well. I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. Listen, in your situation, God is not absent God is not absent. Even if you can't see how God is working in this situation, even if your prayers aren't being answered the way you hoped they would be, you can be assured that what God says is true, that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. These two stories that take place in Dothan, in both cases, God was present and God was working even though people couldn't see it. And you can be assured of this, that whatever situation you find yourself in today, there is a lot more going on than just what you can see. So what might God be doing in your situation? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the second kind of step in developing God's vision for your situation. And that is this, recognizing God's purpose, recognizing God's purpose in your situation. In Joseph's life, we see that many of the situations he found himself in, whether as a slave or as a prisoner, or later on as a government official, those things didn't just happen by random chance. Those were situations that were orchestrated and ordained by God. And in God's divine providence, God put Joseph in each of those situations for a purpose. And ultimately, God used all of those situations for Joseph's good and God's greater purpose, right? God's bigger purpose, which was bigger than just Joseph and his comfort and his life. See, many of the situations that Joseph was in were uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to be in prison. It's not comfortable to be a slave. But God had a purpose with them. There was a time in Joseph's life, however, right, when he did have a a comfortable situation. He had a high-paying job. He lived in a nice house as a high-ranking official. That's a pretty comfortable situation to be in. And yet God's purpose, even in Joseph's comfort, wasn't just that Joseph would have a cush job and not have anything to worry about. God had a bigger purpose than just his comfort, even in his comfort. It was so that Joseph could use that position, that opportunity to do God's work in other people's lives and in the world. And here's why I bring this up. Because as human beings, our tendency, our tendency is to be focused on our own comfort and security. I would go so far as to say, I think that we, we tend to be kind of obsessed with it. I mean, you can even tell. I mean, a lot of our prayers, aren't they? They're for comfort and security, right? And, and you know, we tend to think about ourselves, our, ourselves and maybe our tribe, the people who are directly connected to us. But many times our vision for our lives and vision for our situations doesn't extend beyond ourselves. 
We tend to be obsessed with comfort and security. And as a result, you know what happens is we can fall into one of two traps. Number one is that we can fail to have a vision for our lives which is bigger than just comfort and security. That's one of the traps we can fall into. The other one is this. We project these expectations and this desire onto God so that we become convinced that God's primary role and function in our lives is that he exists to provide us with comfort and security. And when, when we believe that, what happens is that if you experience a situation in your life where you are not comfortable, where you are not secure, then you tend to look at God as if he has failed you, like he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And the other result is this. We, we view comfort and security as the end-all, be-all purpose and goal of human existence, right? Like, if I could just get that and then hold on to it, that's what the purpose of my life is. We see it as the goal of life rather than a means to a greater goal. But remember, Joseph, he gets this cush, high-paying job as a government official in Egypt. God's purpose with putting Joseph in that place was not primarily that Joseph would be comfortable and secure. It was so that through that, he would have an opportunity to do God's work in other people's lives and in the world. See, the comfort and security Joseph had was a fringe benefit. It wasn't the purpose for which God gave him that situation. See, every situation you face in life presents you with certain challenges and it presents you with certain opportunities. There are opportunities even in the calamities. And God has a purpose both with the challenges and with the opportunities. I don't know what situation you're facing in your life right now. I don't know if this is a time of tragedy or hardship or whether it's a time when everything is going great. Maybe for some of you, that's where you're at. Everything's firing on all cylinders. Work has fallen into place. Your relationships are good, right? Everything seems to be going well. Well, whatever situation you're in right now, I want to challenge you today to be asking yourself, God, what are the unique opportunities that this situation presents me with? What are the unique opportunities? And how do you want me to use this situation for your purposes? You know, Paul the Apostle was an amazing example of this kind of thinking. Throughout Paul's writings, it, you see this attitude, you see this understanding where Paul is always looking for how God might want to use every situation he was in for God's greater purposes. So for example, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this thing he had which he calls a thorn in his flesh. It was some kind of physical affliction which he suffered with. And he says that he begged God, he pleaded with God to take that away, to heal him from that affliction. And God said no. Now why did God say no? Well, Paul explains that God was using that affliction in his life to keep him humble, to keep him dependent on God, and to shape his character. Why? So that God could use him even more in the world, so he could be a more useful vessel for God in the world. In other words, God had a purpose with Paul's life, even with his suffering. And that purpose was bigger than just Paul being comfortable. Friends, God has a purpose with your life. Do you know that? And his purpose with your life is grander and bigger than just your personal comfort. Here's the thing, the promise of the gospel is that one day all striving and conflicts will cease. One day there will be no more disease, no more pain, no more death. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes forever. And for those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus, we have comfort and security in him that no one and nothing can ever take away. We have security in Christ that nothing can separate us from the love of God and nothing can take us from the inheritance that is kept for us in heaven secure. We have comfort in Christ through our relationship with God, through him. 
But guys, physical comfort and a sense of physical security, that should not be a primary goal of our lives here on earth. I, I, like, to, I like this saying. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are made for. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are made for. Ships are made to be taken out of the harbor, to be on the sea, to complete missions, right? To do things. God made you for more than just comfort and security. Do you know that? God made you for more than comfort and security. His purpose with your life is that you would make an impact, that you would be used for, by him for a purpose that really matters, something that matters forever, not just for a few moments, for something that is bigger than yourself. When God called Abraham, you remember what he told him? He said, Abe, if you will take my hand and walk with me, I will bless you and I will make you great. Then what did he say? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless you and I will make you great, not just so you can be great and be blessed, but so that you can be a blessing and through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Do you get what I'm saying? He's saying, I'm blessing you, but not just for your own sake. I'm blessing you so that you can be a conduit for blessing, not a reservoir that just collects it, right? And so the purpose of that is that other people will be blessed through him. It's bigger than just Abraham, in other words. See, this is what I love about what Paul writes when he writes to the Philippians. Let me just give you a little background before I explain. Paul wrote to the Philippians when he was under arrest. He was being held as a prisoner in Rome. He was being held as a prisoner in Rome as a result of his missionary work and his endeavors for the gospel. Prior to being arrested, Paul spent 10 years as a missionary traveling from city to city, preaching the gospel, planting churches, raising up leaders to do the same. And then... Of course, there were people who didn't like that and people wanted to stop him and sideline him and they succeeded. And the way they succeeded was they accused him and they told the Roman officials and stuff that Paul was an insurrectionist, that he was a rebel, that he was leading people uh, against Caesar, you know, to worship this other king named Jesus, which was, which was in part true. He was leading people to Jesus and Jesus is a king, but he wasn't an insurrectionist. Anyway, Paul ends up getting arrested. He ends up getting sidelined. And not only that, but he ends up in a kind of corrupt judicial system that keeps him imprisoned for years beyond his trial. He never gets a fair trial. And so what does Paul do? For years, he's sidelined, just hanging out, doing nothing. Then finally, he appeals his case to the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire, which was Caesar himself, and it was his right as a citizen. They take him to Rome. That's how he's now in Rome awaiting trial. He's been under arrest in different kinds of jails and house arrest for several years at this point. And at this point, he's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. He has no freedom. Now, with that in mind, consider what Paul wrote to the Philippians during his arrest. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the furtherance of the gospel. What? That's a, that's a bit weird, right? What things have happened to Paul that have served the furtherance of the gospel? Imprisonment, false accusations, corruption. Most people would look at those things and they would say, those are the things that are keeping Paul away from spreading the gospel and advancing the gospel. Paul says, no, all of those things have served for the advancement of the gospel. And I want you to know it, he says. All of those things have served to advance the gospel. And then he goes on to explain in the next two verses. He says this, look, because of where I've been and what's happened to me, this gospel is spread through the imperial guard, those soldiers who serve in Caesar's house. And my imprisonment has caused other people to become more bold and speak the word of God without fear. Paul was able to see his situation with God's eyes. 
He was able to see the unique opportunities that this situation afforded him and provided him. And he believed that God had a purpose, even with this. See, being under house arrest obviously made Paul be under a certain degree of limitation, doesn't it, right? Like he's limited in what he can do. But on the other hand, it also gave Paul unique opportunities. One of the things it gave him was time. See, when you're traveling around all the time, going from city to city, planting churches, you don't have a lot of time. Now, that's all Paul has, tons of time. So what does Paul do? He picks up the pen, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes four letters while he's in prison, right? Four letters called the prison epistles, which are now books in our Bible in the New Testament. For the past 2,000 years, literally billions of people have read those letters over and over. So yeah, Paul's imprisonment has served the furtherance of the gospel, hasn't it? But there's another unique opportunity that's presented to Paul through his chains, through his imprisonment. Paul is chained to Roman soldiers 24 hours a day. On eight-hour shifts, they swap out, right? So three times a day, he gets a fresh soldier, right? Like fresh meat. And Paul's opinion, it's not that these guys, he doesn't see himself as being chained to them. He sees these guys as being chained to him, right? Like he's like, oh, nice. Oh, yeah, I have something to talk about and you can't go anywhere, right? This is like an evangelist dream. You're chained to me and I get to choose what we're gonna talk about and you can't go anywhere, right? Like you can try and scoot over, but you're only gonna be like two more feet away, right? And we're gonna talk about what I wanna talk about today. Guess what we're gonna talk about? Same thing we talked about yesterday. Remember what that was? We're gonna talk about Jesus. And when that guy's shift is over, they're gonna bring in a new guy and we can start all over again and we can go on. I'll bet Paul's biggest difficulty there in prison was finding time to sleep because he just wanted to talk the whole time. I bet, you know, that's his biggest struggle. Why am I going to sleep? Because I got all these guards. I want to tell them about Jesus. Eight hours. I'm going to use every minute I got. Obviously, some of these guards, right, they're becoming Christians. We can tell that from what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and in Philippians chapter 4. He tells the, the believers that he's writing to, he says, hey, these guys that I'm chained to, they're becoming Christians, and they're the guys who serve in Caesar's palace. They're becoming believers, and they say to tell you guys hi because they're Christians now too. Think about it. If Paul had gone to Caesar's palace and knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, they answer the door and he's like, hi, my name's Paul and I'd like to talk to you about your sins and your eternal salvation. They just slam the door in his face and escort him off the property, right? But now he's smuggled himself in and they can't do anything about it. And he's got them for eight hours a day. These are the same people who work in Caesar's household, right? And later on, Paul the apostle, he's gonna get the opportunity to talk to Caesar himself, all because of his chains, this uncomfortable situation, the situation he would have never chosen for himself, being wrongfully accused, suffering corruption in a judicial system, Paul's able to look at this situation through God's eyes and see the opportunities in the calamity. Friends, God has placed you in a situation for a purpose. I don't know what that situation is, but whatever it is, there's a purpose in it. God has put you there in that situation for a reason. And I challenge you to seek God to give you his vision for that situation. Develop his vision so that you can see your situation the way that he sees it, the way he wants you to see it. God has put you in the family you're in for a purpose. If you're a parent, he's given you those kids for a reason in your relationships, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. God has placed you there for a purpose. In your hardships and in your successes, 
God has a purpose, and his purpose is bigger than just your personal comfort and security. Each of those situations presents you with unique challenges and unique opportunities, and God wants to use both the challenges and the opportunities in your life for his greater purposes, to work in you and to work through you in the world. I want to challenge you to be asking God to show you his purpose with your situation so that you can act and respond in ways that bring honor and glory to him, as well as blessing and benefit to others. This brings us to our third and final point in developing God's vision for your situation. That is this, recognizing God's power in your situation. Come back with me in your minds to 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha's servant, his eyes are opened and he sees the multitude of angels, chariots of fire all around them on the hills. You know what that is? That's an image of power. What it communicated to Elisha's servant was, no matter how powerful the army of the Syrians is, God is more powerful. God has more chariots, and their chariots of fire, and chariots of fire win every day, right? And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says something really interesting that actually is, it brings, sheds some light on this story here in 2 Kings chapter 6. He tells the Ephesians that, he says, my prayer for you is that God would open the eyes of your heart, that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart, the spiritual eyes, so that you would be able to see the hope that you have in Jesus but also so that you could see the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He says it's the same power by which God raised Jesus from the dead. That same power God has towards you. He shows you that same power. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead lives in us through Jesus Christ. When you feel that you lack the strength to go on, when you feel that you lack the strength to do what God is calling you to do, when you feel that you lack the strength to resist temptation, know this, when you are weak, he is strong and he will be strong on your behalf. As we read earlier, he is with you and he will uphold you. He will throw all of his power, all of his might behind you when you need it to strengthen you when you are weak as you wait on him. So when it comes to Elijah and his servant, the story found in 2 Kings chapter 6. It speaks to us about perspective, perspective on the situations we face in our lives. But this story also speaks to us about one other thing that's really important, that is spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness. When Jesus was crucified, as he was hanging on that cross, there was something happening that couldn't be seen with the human eye. There was something happening as Jesus the man was suffering and dying physically. In the unseen spiritual realm, what was happening was that God was placing all of my sins and all of your sins upon him. And he was taking the judgment that we deserve for the sins that we have committed. Jesus' suffering wasn't merely physical. It was spiritual. In fact, that was the true suffering. That's why he cried out in agony saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered the cosmic effects of being forsaken by God on our behalf so that we could be embraced by God, reconciled to God and live in relationship with him forever. On the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserved so that we can now be treated as Jesus deserved. He was treated as we deserve so we can now be treated as he deserves. As children of God, as those who are righteous, as those who are justified before God, as those who walk in relationship with God unashamed. In order for us to understand and appreciate our need for a savior and what Jesus did for us to redeem us, 
We need God to open our eyes and remove our spiritual blindness. What happens when you embrace the gospel, God is opening your eyes. You once were blind, but now you see. And as a result of having your eyes open, you begin to see everything else in a different perspective as well. You begin to see everything else in a different lens as well. You begin to see things in light of the love of God and the work of Jesus on your behalf. And when that happens, you begin to see the situations in your life in a whole new way as well. May God give us his vision for our situations. May he open your eyes spiritually so that you understand and embrace the gospel and through it you see everything else. That you would recognize his presence, his purpose, and his power in your situations. That's my prayer for you today. Lord, thank you that you are a God who loves your people. Lord, thank you that you are a God who opens blind eyes. Lord, where we experience spiritual blindness, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. Open our eyes in our situations. Lord, to see the opportunities, even in the calamities. Lord, would you help us that we would walk with you, that we would see your presence, your purpose, and your power in every situation that we face, and that we might respond, Lord, for your glory and for the good of others. Lord, we need your strength to do that. We need your power, but thank you that you promise it to us. Thank you that you uphold us. Lord, help us to walk in that relationship with you with eyes wide open. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.